This is Banished, and I'm Amna Khalid. Before we begin, I have something very exciting to tell you. We are thrilled to announce the first ever Booksmart Studios podcast contest, open to all undergraduate and graduate students. Booksmart Studios is looking for the next great true crime podcast and offering a $20,000 contract to whoever can knock our socks off. If you're interested in becoming the newest host at Booksmart Studios, or you know someone else who might, visit booksmartstudios.org for the contest rules. Now for today's episode. This December, when I visited my home in Pakistan after five years, I was fortunate to be able to speak with Salima Hashmi, artist, curator, and former principal of the National College of Arts, the premier art school of the country. Mrs. Hashmi, who turned 79 this December, has been active in the Women's Movement and the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. She is also one of a handful of public intellectuals who condemned the nuclear tests carried out by both India and Pakistan in 1998. My conversation with Mrs. Hashmi was wide-ranging. We talked about the state of free expression in Pakistan under the 11-year military regime of General Ziaul Haq, who was a key ally of the United States in the Cold War, how things are now under a democratically elected government, and how she sees attempts to constrain free speech in the U.S. I started out by asking her to reflect on all the various things she's accomplished. It's been a life which is brought me into many roles, so I'm always hesitant when I'm asked to introduce myself. I'm an artist, I'm a curator. I have been a teacher for all of my working life, mostly young adults in art school, but occasionally children for three years in England. I've been very involved in women's rights and also involved in the human rights movement here. I have also been an actor in another life on television, but that was connected very much with, with satire, which was critical of society. So if you can think of a Rowans and Martins you know, laughing of years ago, it was very much like that. And the group that I worked with, which was led by my husband, this was in the 70s, was very well known across Pakistan. When we were banned from television, which happened in 1977, we took to street theater. Then again, on issues which we saw, felt needed commenting on, which was ban on women's rights, constitutional rights being curtailed. So we did that through humor, which is, after all, the most subversive way of letting people know what's going on. So that is... In brief, and it's not very brief, I told you what I've been doing all my life. I'm supposed to be retired now, but I continue to shoot my mouth off about any number of issues in whatever kind of domain requires it. And I think if my health holds out, I will continue to do it, hopefully die with my boots on. That's just a snippet of what you've done in your life. Um, I'm well aware of that. But I'd say that your work um, 
throughout has been incredibly political. Your art isn't just to beautify or to decorate. Your education has been deeply political. The way you've trained your students and your activism. Let's begin a little bit since you mentioned it. Uh, your work in satire and humor. Can you give us a little background as to why is it that you felt compelled to go in that direction? And what were the limitations that were leading you to make recourse to humor? What was it that you couldn't say? What were the times like? I think that humor is inherently subversive because it seeks to comment on and destabilize the world as we know it. And the world is, a, to my mind, a very farcical place. So there's plenty to laugh about. We all know the story of the emperor not having any clothes, and it took a little boy to point that out. So one puts oneself in the position of that little boy. I suppose the basic reason is to communicate. And what better way is there of communicating if we can teach ourselves to laugh at ourselves? Pontificating never gets you anywhere, and I have learned that through my teaching. It's always best to, to first not put yourself on a pedestal, so you speak from the position of the little boy, but always sort of say, you know, we are all a bunch of idiots here in this world. Can we try and make it a better place? That's the basic premise from which one begins satire. Under military authoritarianism, criticizing the state was not an option. Consequences were dire. I asked Mrs. Hashmi to reflect on satire and how she used it as an oblique means to critique the governing establishment. Pomposity is something that is part of how governments operate. Mm. So um, poking fun at pomposity makes people realize that, you know, they are not here forever and they're not meant to be little demigods. You can always laugh at power, which eventually leads to, well, leads to expressing truth to power, speaking truth to power, which is a tough thing to do. But if you're making a joke of it, you know, you can get away with a lot. In Pakistan, we've learned always, because we've lived through severely repressive times, that ordinary people also laugh at pomposity and they do it privately. The jokes during military regimes were phenomenally inventive and creative. And we made use of that sense of humor, which is part of our social makeup. So in that way, we were popular because people recognized themselves in what we did. You've touched on this a little bit, that military regimes are pompous. Authority in general, I think, is, but authoritarian regimes in particular. And they're particularly threatened by art, expression, free expression. Would you comment a little bit on the Zia years, what it was like in Pakistan for art education and for artists who were, who were practitioners, having grown up as someone watching you on TV and watching, you know, your fellow artists? There was a subversive creativity that is lacking perhaps in societies which are very free. There is this interesting back and forth between oppression and creativity. Could you comment a bit about the Ziyayas and how those were interacting with art? It's an awful thing to say, but sometimes, you know, oppression is needed before human beings find in themselves the resilience and the ability 
to really question and to fight back for people who are lucky enough to be creative. It lies in how they use their art and their craft to challenge what they see as a deafening silence. Poets do it. You know, my father was a poet, so I learned at a very young age when he went to jail for many years that poetry was the only thing that could combat the effort to silence him because they flew over the high walls of the jail and they reached people. So very often, very early, one learned that there are ways to challenge. And I think most probably artists, writers, they are people who become the voice of a larger number of people through their work. And they they come to embody people's feelings. But they also have to understand that this is their role and a tremendous responsibility. You can either shun what is going on and disappear into a little hole and wait for you know the snow to cover you up and things to change sometime in the future. Or you can take arms against the oppressive state, but through your work. Mm-hmm. So the Zia years, which were possibly the worst that we have seen, though currently we are not living it through any better times, the effort to silence creativity was something that we experienced because there were these edicts that used to come, which would begin with something seemingly innocuous. You know, being a a female, you're supposed to don a chadar or you were not supposed to wear a sari because Mm -hmm. it was not yours. So there was this regimenting the female body through dress. That was only in one aspect. There was also that you were not supposed to teach anything that could be considered non-Islamic. Islam is a faith which is very wide and it can be interpreted in so many different ways. But there was these very insidious ways of trying to make it into rituals and trying to make it into certain ways of behavior and expression. You took it up as a teacher by gently never being direct because then I would be nailed down, um, but employing feelings, responses, ways that we felt that society was being brutalized and how it was altering us as a people. The centerpiece of General Zayar's regime was his overt Islamization program, a movement to promote a deeply conservative version of Islam and to instill it in every aspect of Pakistani society, from education to arts and culture to the law. Sharia law, along with all its inhumane punishments, like public hangings, lashings, and stoning to death, became a feature of the legal landscape of the country. I asked Mrs. Hashmi about how the brutality of the military regime affected her own work and her pedagogy. There was one terrible event in which there was to be a public hanging in Lahore. And I had been driving past that area with my principal of the college, and we saw what seemed like gallows being erected. You know, we couldn't believe it. And then we just asked, and they said, yes, this afternoon there's going to be a public hanging. And now this is something that is not remotely connected to the ways of jurisprudence in Pakistan. So we came back, and I came back to my class, and I just felt that this could not pass without some 
something being felt by these people who I taught. And I remember that in that class, there were a couple of students who then became quite eminent artists. And I told them, the males obviously, the females couldn't go, that I think you should be there. They went. I felt guilty about it afterwards, that maybe, maybe one should shield one's students from ugliness and brutality. But then I felt that, no, perhaps they have to, they have to see what this means before they can create something that is eventually moving. Art doesn't happen immediately. It permeates the artist's life and sensibility. So one tried in those years to make one's own art respond to the time, which meant for me as a female artist that the assaults, the legal assaults on my body and the attempt by the state to take over my body because there were these new laws that a woman's rape could only be recognized by law as being rape if there were four adult witnesses, that two women were equal to one man in the court of law and the giving of evidence and so on. Um, responding to it through my own work, through letting people know that there was an importance in their struggle, that it was significant, they didn't have to stand on the rooftops and shout about it. But they should take cognizance of where they were living and what their time was all about. With all the different kinds of state limitations on the freedom of expression, people found covert and creative ways to resist and subvert authority. And the arts became a key vehicle for resistance. I asked Mrs. Hashmi to elaborate on some of these strategies. And in her response, she mentions her father and his poetry. So I'm going to take a moment to tell you a bit about her father, Fez Ahmed Fez, one of Pakistan's most celebrated poets and a leading member of the Communist Party of Pakistan. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and was the first Asian to receive the Lenin Peace Prize in 1962. Not shy to confront the excesses of military rule, Fez was incarcerated for taking on the establishment in 1951. And in 1979, when General Ziaul Haq, who had led a coup and assumed leadership of the country in 1977, executed Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, the former democratically elected prime minister of Pakistan, Fares left the country and took asylum in Beirut. He was married to Alice George, a naturalized Pakistani citizen who was a writer and prominent human rights activist. So there were many, many instances where there were edicts that came that male and female students couldn't be on the stage together, they couldn't be performing together, dance was forbidden, things that are inherently part of our culture. Because dance is part of our culture, singing together is part of our culture. We do it at all kinds of events. I mean, forget about public performances. Certain kinds of poetry was also banned. But then we had wonderful new performers coming up who started singing traditional Sufi poetry, which is very anti-clerical. And so, you know, the audiences loved it. And I remember I was at possibly one of the early performances of the great singer Abida Parveen. Mm -hmm. And she sang the traditional Sufi poet Bulesha, in which he curses the clerics. (laughs) 
And you know, the audience loved it until she was banned from singing Bulesha, which is unheard of. I mean, he's one of the great, you know, Sufi poets of, of our region. So there was a constant 11 years of struggle, which was very often not overt. It was covert, but it was present. Poetry really got so much material. And people would memorize poems because they could not very often be published. So people learned them by heart. There was a great occasion in which the singer Iqbal Bano sang my father's poetry. This poem then became legend. But at that event, in the middle of her singing, you know, people started shouting political slogans. And they wouldn't let her stop. You know, she carried on and on and on. And it was exhilarating for the people sitting there because she became their voice. And that, after all, is the role of an artist. And the next morning at 6 o'clock, she rang me up and she said, no, are you awake? You know, she woke me up. I said, yeah. She said, Salima, I have never in my life had so much applause it's changed. Now, she was a singer, a concert singer, a sedate concert singer with not even remotely political appeal. But that night, that changed about her. Her whole oof changed. She became so much to do with inspiring people, moving people. Before that, she was a Sano singer. But that event changed her view of herself. That happened a lot with artists, that when they began their work, people who were not political, who were apolitical, and that happened with women artists, we signed a manifesto outlining for us what our art should be about because we felt that we could not stand aside and let what was happening go without comment. So the 15 artists who signed that women's manifesto knew that the manifesto had to be secret. We could not let it be published or could not let it be known. It was published many, many years later. But at that moment of signing, we realized that as artists, we had a role to play. We had to have a sense of responsibility to our time and to our people. And our work, directly or indirectly, must be made in that context. And so women's art also changed. Because even women artists who were not used to having social or political work, that was not what they did. Now they became alert to what they needed to do. And of course, we affected our students. Affected and infected. <laughs> both, both. Yeah, I, mean, I once did a talk which was called Art by Infection. <laughs> Very relevant in our times. <laughs> And it has had its really funny moments. Mm. I remember there was a minister of education in those years who was in himself a very progressive person. But he had to toe the line, mm. you know, as people do. And he quietly told me that a file had come to him which said 
that all teaching of all sculpture had to be banned in art schools. So when he told me that, I was aghast. And I said, you know, Doxa, is this going to happen? So he said, I don't think so. So I said, why? Because it's the order from on high. And he said, I put the file in such a place that nobody's going to ever find it. I love it. These bureaucratic ways of subversion as well. Yes. Because we had our friends, you know. It's not as though, you know, everybody suddenly turned oppressor and evil. Mm. Of course, the people who turn away when there are these orders, they are many. But then there's the odd individual who really takes a very quiet stand, which somehow saves the day. There was a move to remove statues from museums. Can you imagine the whole of the Gandhara civilization disappearing from view? But then again, it was the same minister who vetoed that idea and said, you know, we have to appear civilized because after all, Pakistan is in the forefront of the fight against the Red Peril because we had taken the stand, which was the Western stand of the role in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. But there were many occasions in which our Western friends who one met the diplomats and so on, who were taking the stand against the Soviets and supporting the Mujahideen, in which one would say to them as an artist, don't you notice what is happening in Pakistan? Don't you view what is going on here? The move against women's rights, the absolutely hideous suppression of free expression, complete censorship in the media, newspapers going to press with whole columns crossed out with just white spaces where writing should be. Don't you see all that? And then I'll get a report like saying, oh, Salima, but it's not as bad as some of the banana republics. Well, thank you very much, you know. We were in the sort of forefront of fighting against the Soviets, supposedly for freedom. But there was absolutely free sanction for General Ziaul Haq to suppress those very freedoms in our own country. So we were less than enthusiastic about Ziaul Haq's support for the Mujahideen because we felt, you know, this, we were in an equally bad position in Pakistan. And I think the great separations that occurred between those in power and those who felt powerless were very, very noticeable in those years. The fractures that you see in society occurred during those times, and it was very much with the support of our Western friends. American audiences are not always familiar with the ways in which American foreign policy was curtailing the freedom of the very sections of the population whose freedoms are championed back in the U.S. So pointing this out is going to be perhaps eye-opening for many of our listeners. I'd like to pivot a little bit to times now. We are supposedly under a democratic government, democratically elected. Yet, you know, I've come back to Pakistan after five years. Of course, I keep up with it and what's happening. I'm deeply distressed by some of the bills that are being introduced in the parliament, particularly in relation to social media, and wanting to regulate that. As it is, our journalists are highly 
constrained in what they can say. Independent media is present, but the guardrails are pretty narrow. So can you reflect a little bit on what is going on right now? And how is this different or not from what was happening back in the 70s and 80s under Ziaul Haq, which is very much a moment of military dictatorship? I think the most obvious difference is during those years past, you knew very well where the sanctions were coming from. You knew where the power lie. You knew who the enemy was, as far as we are concerned in civil society. Today, we don't know. We don't know because the intelligence agencies, the agencies that act with impunity, they have mushroomed. And consequently, law becomes totally ineffective when, if you write a column, a harsh column, or you say something on your channel, which is not acceptable to the powers that be, instead of taking you to court, which of course is something that you expect when there is a civil government, you will either disappear, you will find that cases are brought against you for your, or your wife for having property elsewhere. You will find that you are beaten up one day you might find your child kidnapped. There are all kinds of insidious ways of making people toe the line. And that is the difference. Today, the repression of free expression is probably more severe than it has ever been in Pakistan. There are many more people taking the laws into their own hands. These are the extremist groups that are the evolutionary outcome of our intervention in Afghanistan. Those mujahideens then became the new terrorists. They have been a scourge in the West, but they have been a far greater scourge in our country. Today, you don't know. You don't know when you say something that you think is quite normal conversation. It may be taken up in a case of blasphemy brought against you. There are people who died because they said something which was quite innocent, but a mob comes knocking at your door. There are any ways, number of ways in which you can silence opposition in the media, silence opposition in poetry, silence opposition in teachers who teach in the classrooms. And there are serious consequences today, which are in some cases are far more serious than they were during Zia's period. In Zia's period, yes, people were lashed. Some people were even hanged for speaking against the state or sedition, as it was called then, because there was martial law. But today, it is, it is so carefully wrapped in mystery that you don't know. I know of people who've disappeared because of things that they have said on their Facebook page. And we don't know where they are. No idea where they are. Lives have been totally trampled upon, and they continue to be trampled upon. They are such clear evidence because today they have, you know, their cameras, street cameras, and you see, okay, a journalist is picked up by a car with dark windows. They are obviously state agents, and they just simply disappear. 
I mean, some cases, there's such a hue and cry that they are then produced or they let go. But there is violence against the people who are in opposition. There is misuse of laws. Judges are terrified or they're bought off. In that way, perhaps we are no different to other countries in the world today. I think as somebody who observes politics in the West, one has been horrified to see mob rule in the most unexpected of places. Mrs. Hashmi, as you look to the future, what do you see? And what would you say to those of us who want to make a difference? As people with a social conscience, uh, you wonder how the world can write itself today. How can we sort of put back the norms that are supposed to be the norms to aspire to? which is not majoritarianism, which is not the powerful stamping all over the powerless, where the beliefs, the color of one's skin, one's ethnic makeup, should that put you in danger? Can you not claim safety in any kind of a, a social society or a community? I think there needs to be far greater reassessment of the social contract of the individual, the state in which they live. And that, that applies, sadly, for most countries in the world today. Humankind should really, really take a close look at itself and see where it's heading, where we are all going as a species. Well, we're probably not going to last very long with climate change. I think we're all going down very quickly. But <laughs> if I could just ask one more question, which is, you've talked about the threats to free expression in Pakistan from the state. As I sit in the US today, I find that threats to free expression are coming both from the state, particularly from the extreme right, the Republicans that are trying to clamp down on what can and can't be taught in schools, but also from the liberals and the extreme left who have taken it upon themselves to, to dictate to everyone how things ought to be. They too are narrowing the space for free expression, manifesting as cancel culture, or some people refer to it as, you know, woke culture. I'd love to hear your thoughts as someone who's, you know, a global citizen observes this, has a deep understanding of how culture morphs over a period of time and how the space for expression is constrained or expanded. What do you make of these different kinds of threats in the West? I think that in one's youth, one had this vision of a world in which there weren't any borders, you know, John Lennon and all <laughs> that. I'm very much part of the Beatles generation. And you do think of, you know, saying imagine. Yeah. And therefore it worries you when you find that large groups of people lack that imagination, when they cannot see that imposing will, any kind of will really, carries within it a desire for power. Basically, that is it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the concentration of that power immediately means that there are others that you're depriving of that power, the power to live their lives as they prefer to. 
the power to be an individual and not be part of a collective and always be judged as a collective. I think that perhaps greater communication has had this other side in which there is a desire of, you know, all these little megalomaniacs wanting to impose their will, their views, their passions, because I don't think that they have dreams. I think the artist is a person with the dream. I think the poet is a person with the dream. I think the musician is a person with the dream. You won't find them indulging in this kind of bowing down mm-hmm. to power. So the majority, even though, you know, when we say that, okay, democracy means the will of the majority, I think you have to be tremendously careful that the majority, as we have learned many, many times in history, can be totally wrong. And it is very often the lone voice, which will be the voice of reason, which will be the voice of the dreamer, which will be the person who sings the song that nobody else is willing or strong enough to join in. Mrs. Hashmi, can I ask you, as someone who's seen many seasons of oppression and repression in Pakistan, what would you say to those of us living in the West at a time when self-righteousness is pervasive? And what role can art play in rekindling our humanity? I think we have to realize that self-righteousness is a very frightening thing and that ambiguity can sometimes be the only thing that keeps you sane. Maybe it's possible that it may be this or it may be that. So can we not think about it together? I truly believe that art is the way which finds a common platform, which provides a kind of forum where people, because they're being led out of themselves and maybe made a part of a larger vision, a part of a dream, they can momentarily forget their pettiness. Mm -hmm. To believe that you have the larger good, if it's couched in terms of music, of beauty, of a sudden flash that you have when you see a photograph which seems to say so much more than the color or the black and white in which it is made, in which you suddenly recognize, okay, this is how I become part of something far larger than myself. I think that is where the artist plays their role in society. And they are the subverters of the demigods. We have to remember always that they are the subverters of the demigods. And I would say to the West, watch out for the demigods and bring an artist to cut them down to size. I can't think of a better antidote to the kind of literal mindedness that is pervading the West today. Mrs. Hashmi, thank you so much for making time for me and for talking to me today. This has been such a great honor and pleasure. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. Salima Hashmi is an artist, an educator, and a leading public intellectual in Pakistan. If you like what you heard today and want more thought-provoking content, please become a paying subscriber to Booksmart Studios. Subscribers get transcripts, full interviews, bonus segments, and exclusive written columns. And don't forget to comment, rate, and share what you've heard here today. 
our success at Booksmart depends as much on you as on us. Banished is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Volo, and I am Amna Khaled. <laughs>